0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible
1: by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hot varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com.
0: Additional support provided by...
1: Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to BrewNinja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code Ninja 21
2: As we start putting a lot of CO2 pressure on yeast, it's going to behave differently.
3: There was two different kind of groups that were looking into these pressurized fermentations on opposite sides of the country.
2: And ultimately, it's one more tool in the toolbox of the brewer. Now we have one more parameter that the brewer can use to differentiate a product or push the bounds of what they're currently able to create.
0: This week on the show... Using the dissolved CO2 content of active fermentations to control your process.
3: Hi, my name is Karen Fortman, and I was most recently uh, the head of research and development at White Labs, a yeast and fermentation company in San Diego, and I just recently left the beer industry.
2: Womp womp.
3: So sad.
2: My name is Andrew McIntosh. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Florida. My primary area of research is fermentation. It's a wonderful area to be looking at, and I'm glad to be able to talk to you today.
0: Before we talk about your experiment, let's get into the definition of pressure. Bill Macca wrote about the three different types of pressure— hydrostatic, osmotic, and top pressure in his recent TQ article, which we also discussed back on episode 220. But just so we're clear, what we're talking about this time is really just CO2 concentration, dissolved CO2, which is a function of top or head pressure.
2: That's correct. And we're dealing with the The top pressure, the head pressure, it's something that we can manipulate very easily. And specifically, we're looking at the partial pressure of CO2. You
0: wrote that Saccharomyces will survive and proliferate unimpeded at very high hydrostatic pressure. So not what we're talking about here. So hydrostatic pressure without high dissolved CO2 levels. Talk more about that because you gave a pretty amazing example in the paper.
2: Yeah. So microorganisms are very resistant to the overall pressure that they're going to be experiencing. Um, We do use hydrostatic pressure to kill microorganisms in the food industry, but the amount of pressure required is astronomical. We have to go up to hundreds of thousands of PSI in order to be able to induce cell death. That's not what we're trying to do here. And it's a completely different order of magnitude outside. So if you're trying to kill your yeast with top pressure, you're not going to be successful within the brewing industry.
0: Explain why dissolved CO2 inhibits higher alcohol formation.
3: Yeah, so there's actually been, um, I won't say a lot of research done in pressure and fermentation, uh, but there has been a, a enough um, Well, not enough
0: because you just had to write another article. Exactly. (laughs) There isn't a lot
3: on uh, pressurized fermentations, but people have looked at how pressure affects fermentations in the past. So uh, we talk about a couple of those articles um, within our article that just came out. Uh, But one of the big things that most of the research will agree on is that um, CO2 really, Uh, inhibits acetyl-CoA, and this is due to just being sensitive to the CO2. Um, And acetyl-CoA is one of the precursors of uh, the acetate esters, um, and that's why we're seeing a lower production of acetate esters. Um, When we're talking about the higher alcohols, this is mostly due to, and again, there's quite a bit of... mm, I hesitate to say quite a bit of research, but there's been enough papers out there that have shown um, that the pressure can really affect amino acid formation and amino acid um, formation is really, or those amino acids are precursors of um, isobutanol and isoamyl alcohol.
0: And dissolve CO2, it doesn't inhibit higher alcohol formation as much as it inhibits ester formation, right?
2: It's specific to the ester and it's specific to the higher alcohol. Not all of them are going to be affected equally. And that's one of the big findings coming out of this is that as we start putting a lot of CO2 pressure on yeast, it's going to behave differently because separate compounds are going to be inhibited. Overall, we'll see um, less ester formation and less alcohol formation, but it really was specific to the acetate esters and specific higher alcohols. That has been seen before and is because of the specific pathways being targeted. It's important to note as well that if you, we were to use an overpressure of nitrogen, we wouldn't be seeing differences. They were very specific to CO2.
3: And it's also um, important to remember that this is also going to be very yeast strains uh, Yeast strain dependent. So, just because one yeast strain is acting in a certain way doesn't mean that all yeast strains are going to be acting in a certain way.
0: Okay. Um, As CO2 concentration increases from the minimum to the maximum of what's possible in beer, what are the inhibitory effects, or, or are the inhibitory effects of yeast growth, health, and metabolism linear?
3: I would say that that is yet to be seen. um I think we we touch on that aspect in the conclusion that there hasn't really been that much research focusing on let's say like repitching of yeast or how that um how that yeast uh performs in later generations um and the linearity definitely from my understanding of the literature has not been um explored more
2: and to build upon that we are somewhat limited in the amount of top pressure that we can use most fermentation vessels aren't rated to obscenely large amounts that we might want to try and do in the lab and especially the point where we would actually be inhibiting some of the yeast um, being alive or performing other functions so we do have a narrow window of A couple of atmospheres where we can begin to manipulate this pressure. But even within that window, we're seeing significant effects.
0: Okay, so let's hear about the experiment that you wrote about in the article.
2: So in this experiment, we wanted to really take a look at the both extremes. We wanted to take a look at very, very low pressure CO2 and of course higher pressure CO2. And so we designed an experiment where we could ferment beer under these two extremes, and we were really looking for the differences that we were expecting to see. Uh, I wasn't expecting there to be such a large difference in the esters. Uh, I knew that there would likely be a change in the growth rate of the yeast, how many yeast, or how quickly they are metabolizing the sugars, which I was able to draw from previous reports. But the effect upon all of the volatiles combined, I had heard antidotally that there would be effect, but I had assumed it was due to how the lower pressures or the higher pressures were being implemented. I assumed that it was due to more of a, we're trapping more of these esters in place, as opposed to actually changing how the yeast are producing.
0: Okay, why don't you give us some more details about the um, uh, specifics about the experiment?
2: Oh, absolutely. So at the University of Florida, in our beverage research area, we're very fortunate to have basically a small brew house. It's a couple hundred liters or a couple of a barrel system. And it's we have a large bioreactor, which is just a fancy fermenter that allows us to control all the parameters. And we can pressurize it up to several times what you would a normal fermenter in a brewery. So first, I had my PhD student make a several batches of wort which he then froze so that we could keep doing the same experiment with the same wort again and again we did a couple of day propagation of our yeast so that we'd have enough in the same condition every time and then we beginning running these experiments in our bioreactor looking at the effect of in this case the pressure As expected, we began to see the differences in the rates of fermentation as we adjusted the pressure, and we were able to control these fermentations very tightly. It's a wonderful thing about the lab is that you can run the same fermentation under the same parameters again and again and really get the exact same kinetics, the same final attenuation, the same product. And that's when we really began to notice that there were very large changes in the ester. When we ran our beer through a sensory panel, it didn't perform particularly well because it was... A lot esterier than people were expecting to see, and we thought that was a really interesting finding.
0: And, and what was the um, what was the yeast strain that you were studying in this in this trial?
2: I believe we used Lalaman Diamond for this strain. It's industrially significant. Uh, it's something that a lot of people are going to be making use of, and so we tried to find one that would be indicative and useful for industry to try and translate these results.
3: Just to kind of add to that, um, at White Labs, we had done a couple of different pressurized uh, fermentations. I had worked with, um, oh gosh, what is their name? Uh, Williams Warren. They're out of New Zealand and they make uh, pressurized fermentation vessels for uh, home brewers specifically. And then Chris had worked with Blickman on um, some pressurized fermentations as well. And that's actually kind of the serendipitous way that um, Andrew and White Labs kind of um, came together to write this article was john palmer uh the editor of the mbaa um really wanted a pressurized fermentation article and uh was able to put us in touch with each other and and,
2: we and were, you got one
3: exactly and he got one and it was really good to
2: see that other people were working on this as well and it wasn't just uh one or two labs there was uh, Dr. John Palmer had contacted several people, were able to compare notes, and we found that the results that we were getting were very comparable. And as I had never seen these before in literature, I thought, yes, this is a great opportunity to write this up.
0: Okay. Um, You wrote that the grain bill and mash profile was expected to result in a high concentration of esters and higher alcohols. How so?
2: So we were using a 100% barley. Grain bill, uh, no adjuncts, and we were fermenting slightly off temperature. We wanted to create a scenario where there would be lots of esters because as we were trying to highlight the differences in this particular experiment that was in the paper, we wanted to show kind of the, just how much difference there could be. And we wanted to make sure that we could measure it and really quantify it and repeat it as well.
0: Okay. Um, and I'm not sure if we mentioned, but this fermentation was at 15C, um, just so we have that. So, um, you know, one thing that stands out getting into the results, uh, Unless, was there anything else you wanted to say about sort of the setup of the experiment?
3: Um, I, I would just like to add that um, the serendipitous nature of coming together and, and um, realizing that, you know, there was two different kind of groups that were looking into these pressurized fermentations on opposite sides of the country. Um, we at White Labs have do- had done experiments with pressurized fermentations um, in the past. And really, we're looking at the data from more a uh, presentation standpoint. So, not necessarily looking for like the replicates and, and the statistical nature of it. Um, and so, w- there is plenty of data that supports uh, the data that came out of, um, Andrew's lab. And, um, I think the beauty of this experiment is that it has been done multiple times with multiple different E strains and we're seeing the same general trends. Um, even though not all the data is included in this paper, because this is kind of a, an interesting, almost review article with a little bit of, uh, data put in there as well.
0: Okay. Uh, before we get into the analytical results of the of the volatiles, um, I guess just looking at the results, one thing that stands out is that the vacuum pressure fermentation, uh, which had roughly a quarter of the CO2 content, was a full day faster than the atmospheric fermentation.
2: And that's the main result that we were looking for coming into these types of experiments was we had been doing a fair bit of work on biofuel fermentation, which is just another way we treat them exactly the same way. We make a f- fermentation broth, we add in microorganisms, and we're looking specifically to get the maximum amount of ethanol possible out of the fermentation. Uh, translating that those findings of a higher kinetics to the brewing industry was something that we do all the time in food sciences. What works well in one industry will likely work well in another industry. So we can take the innovations where we can use the reduced pressure or the lower CO2, where we saw higher kinetics, translate that to the brewing industry. And then we have to see how is that going to affect the overall fermentation making of a product. In this case, it's going to affect the volatiles and the esters that are going to come out.
0: Do you want to give us a, a quick rundown without getting uh, into the weeds of how you analyzed volatiles from, from each fermentation?
2: So the volatiles, we used a GCMS Uh Gas chromatography allows us to basically purge a sample of our beer, fixate all of the volatiles into our chamber, and then begin to quantify them. Uh, I, myself, am an engineer. I tackle most of our fermentation kinetics from an engineering perspective, and I rely on our support to other faculty, in this case, the other author, Dr. Sarnowski. He was the chemist who was able to bring to the team his expertise in quantifying volatiles, uh, trapping them so that we get an absolute measure of the quantity, and to effectively bring that into the paper as well.
0: Okay. And he essentially assessed volatiles in basically three different buckets, right?
2: Uh, we had all of the individual volatiles. We classified them into the buckets ourselves as we thought they were the most the cleanest way to present the data. We went through a few different iterations, and we had all of these different volatiles, and we actually looked at them at the beginning, the middle, and the end of fermentation. But at the end of the day, what we wanted to show with this paper, which is how big of a difference was, so we actually ended up only using the end volatiles.
0: Okay, let's hear, let's hear about the results.
3: Sure. Um, so, when fermented at low CO2 concentrations, the total amount of esters and higher alcohols increased approximately 103% and 60% respectively. Um, we noticed this mostly with or most strongly with the acetate esters and the isoam alcohol. Um, I would say that all of these, we did want to point out that all of these compounds were above threshold. Um, and uh, you can see some of the, the thresholds are are well above thresholds, um, so we did want to point that out as well. Um, it's in our, our table two of the paper. The big thing that came out of this paper um, that really correlates with the literature was that um, the volatiles that we were looked that we looked at were negatively correlated with the presence of the CO two. So w- as our CO2 goes up, the acetate esters and the isoamyl alcohols specifically um, go down.
2: And I also think that one of the big findings that we have is just how well this data correlates with antidotal evidence. From open fermentations having healthy yeast to the differences in the volatiles that you get just by running with the reduced CO2 conversely, under pressure, where you have reduced production of some of these volatiles, it seems to fit different styles very well. It seems to fit with what the brewers are saying, and it seems to fit with what we had seen with the limited literature that was available. And that's not something that happens every time you run a study.
3: Agreed. and. Kind of on on top of that is we I think from chris's standpoint chris white's standpoint, um something that he really wanted to kind of put out to the the world of brewing um is maybe the possibility of investigating pressurized brewing brews a little bit more. It's definitely something that has been explored in the home brewing sector, and um I think you know making sure that your tanks are rated correctly is uh, step one. Making sure that all all safety um, components, everything's, all the I's are dotted and all the t's are crossed um, before running a pressurized fermentation is important. But that there is definitely a a way for the craft brewing industry to to take this knowledge and and use it.
2: And ultimately, it's one more tool in the toolbox of the brewer. We already have the capacity to manipulate so many aspects of making a beer, and we know that every little thing that you change is going to have an effect on the final product. The water, the raw materials, the yeast, the strain, how healthy it is. Now we have one more parameter that the brewer can use to differentiate a product or push the bounds of what they're currently able to create.
0: Yeah, you know... um we We just did earlier uh we did a asked the brewmasters panel and, and this topic of pressurized fermentations came up and I was kind of surprised because we had a couple of larger brewers um, on the panel that are um, brewers from larger breweries i guess I should say um, that um, you know had uh, they i asked them if if that was a tool that they really use and uh, they indicated that um pressure was in most cases their enemy and that they they really went to great lengths to try to not let the fermentations become pressurized. And that surprised me because I thought that a lot of the, um, lot of the industrial breweries were really manipulating, you know, increasing the temperature and, and, and increasing the pressure to, you know, to get similar results faster. Um, so that was kind of a surprise to me.
2: So you are going to get the similar results faster, uh, but there is going to be the drawback of negatively influencing the yeast health and the overall rate of fermentation. So there's always going to be that balancing act. How much pressure do I use versus what is the effect on the yeast and how is that affecting the overall kinetics of the fermentation? As Karen has alluded to, a little bit more work needs to be done and how best we can implement this. But now... We are really setting the stage for there is differences. This is why we believe these differences are happening. And this is where we can begin looking at some of the applications.
0: Coming up
3: play around with it i mean i think that's what the the beauty of craft is is continuously evolving and and figuring out new ways to ferment and get interesting flavor profiles
0: i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas really only one thing that keeps this podcast going and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors the next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies be sure to thank them for their generous support
1: get to know proximity malt we malt superior european style low protein varieties grown close to home in delaware and colorado domestically grown precisely malted to style with our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com/mbaa. Even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pier Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N-Pier Seltzer Nutrient. Or call BSG at
0: 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Yeast Propagation Best Practices webinar, November 16th. District Northern California hosts its fall meeting, December 7th at Lagunitas Brewing Company in Petaluma. And the annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th through the 28th, just outside of Toronto. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of
1: resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew.
0: Now back to the show. wrote that the majority of the volatiles generated at both CO2 concentrations exceeded the threshold limit. Talk about that. Was that a surprise and to what extent do you think this is strain dependent? For example, based on what we've heard on episode 216, I would not expect the same results if you'd use say 3470 instead.
2: It's going to be very strain dependent and there's a lot of factors that are going to go into Just how many of these volatile compounds are formed from the temperature to the yeast strain to even the precursors for some of these. The
3: weather. And the matrix effect. Ah, That's also a huge thing.
2: Absolutely. Uh, But that was kind of expected that we were trying to get volatiles so that we could see just how big of a difference that we could do just between vacuum and control fermentation. Just highlight that this is a tool that can be used.
0: Karen, do you want to expand on what you just said?
3: Uh, so flavor threshold is usually defined as you know, the the threshold in which you can uh, either smell or taste the compound. Uh, but generally, when we th- talk about flavor threshold, this is being done in um, light lagers or, or beers that don't have a lot of other components to them. They're not very... Um, they're not very complex complex in nature there we go um and so if you're talking about the flavor threshold in a lager versus a belgian beer the flavor threshold uh, analytically speaking is going to be the same in either beer but because of your belgian beer having so many more um like ester components and and higher alcohols uh the amount of I'm just pulling out any compound right now. visceral diketone that is detected and um, perceived might be different than if you had that same amount of that visital diketone in um, a lager beer.
0: How does all of this explain historical differences between open top versus modern fermentations in a CCT?
2: So the open top fermentations are going to be, especially if they are. Wide open top, uh, like the old swimming pool style open trough fermenter, that's going to have a very small amount of CO2 above the fermentation. There will still be some, but it will be minor. The more you restrict the off-gassing, the more of a CO2 blanket may be formed and a higher partial pressure CO2 will build up. So as we begin to seal them up more and more, we are going to be effectively putting an atmosphere of CO2 over the fermentation. And as we restrict it even more than that, we can build up the pressure within. Um, An open top fermentation is known to be or produce very happy yeast that are going to rapidly consume the sugars, produce the ethanol and the CO2, and then the assortment of other esters. This was kind of the natural state of the yeast and would be more akin to what we would have seen in in our history. And our historical styles of beer would have been more akin to an open-style fermentation. There is a lot of advantages to going to the sealed cylinder conical vessel, uh, which we alluded to some of them in the paper, but the microbial, tech, er, microbial safety of it, the ability to control the temperature very tightly, and the actual microflora within, we can be very sure that we are working with only a single strain of microorganism, and we can monitor how it's going to be changing. Also, from a sanitary perspective, it's far easier to maintain a sanitary environment. The drawback being that unless we're pumping in large amounts of nitrogen or changing up headspace, we are going to be building up carbon dioxide dissolved within the beer. This can actually be a good thing from an overall process point of view, because as the beer leaves the fermenter, it's already going to be partially carbonated.
0: What should a brewer who switches from CCTs to open tops expect? Are are there any other trade-offs that need to be considered?
3: Yeah, I would say that, you know, um, Chris was able to talk to Vinny from Russian River and um, his kind of insight into the difference between his open top fermenters and his CCTs and how, you know, it, it is really a, a passion project and how it's definitely more work to ferment in open top fermenters. Um, they they like the difference i'm i mean i think he he's quoted as saying it's not better or worse it's just different um the yeast is happier it um is he plays around with the different types of beers that he puts in open top fermenters. It doesn't just have to be an ale. It doesn't have to be a lager. It could be a Hellas. It could be, um, you know, a Belgian, whatever you might want to put in there. I think really what we're hoping to do with this paper is just provide a little bit more insight into um pressurized fermentations and, and allow the brewer to, Safely, hopefully, um, go ahead and start experimenting with adjusting pressurized fermentations.
0: The paper mentions using a water aspirator to reduce CO2 levels in sealed tanks. Talk about that.
2: So, we needed a way in order to bring down the pressure within the vessel without ripping off a significant number of volatiles, and so that we could mimic the conditions found antidotally in breweries, and just keep the pressure lower. If we used a vacuum pump, I'd be worried about burning that guy out after a couple of weeks, and I intended to do a significant number of fermentations. So what we eventually decided to do is we just took a water aspirator, it's just one of those little venturi taps that has a little connection coming in from it sideways, and it's just going to take the flow of water from a water pump in my cold water tank and circulate my cold water tank around in a circle through this little venturi tap which is going to go from a wide diameter down to a low diameter creates a small little vacuum which i hooked up to my headspace Uh, what the effect of that was is i reduced the pressure inside the headspace and then maintained it there without continuously drawing off more volatile so it wasn't as though i was stripping Esters and C- or obviously, we weren't stripping esters because we had a significantly higher concentration. But only when more CO2 evolved from the fermentation, that was then removed to keep the overall pressure at about a third of an atmosphere.
0: Cool. There are some yeast strains designated as high pressure. Karen, I'm pretty sure I've used one from your former employer. What's the difference there? Are those strains just less stressed by elevated CO2 levels, or is there more to it than that?
3: Yeah, f- so all of White Labs yeast are isolated from brewing environments, um, like natural brewing environments. We we aren't currently, or they aren't currently doing any um, genetic modification or or uh, s- specialized breeding. So um, I can't say this for all yeast because i'm not privy to that information from every um yeast strain purveyor but at white labs specifically i think um wlp 925 is our high pressure lager yeast um that was a yeast that was isolated from a brewery in which they were doing pressurized lager fermentations
0: okay and and do you but do you think that's the um do you think it was just adapted to tolerate the those higher co2 levels i mean uh, obviously it it must perform with a reasonable reasonable outcomes and and good health and all that uh so i mean is do you think there's any what else would be different about that strain and maybe how it's adapted
3: yeah i would say that it's um almost 100% the uh evolutionary characteristic of that e strain um so it's it's found ways to adapt um whether it's uh you know, from a a genome rearrangement so i don't know if it's um specifically a genetic characteristic or if it's just a phenotype in the way that it's actually expressing its genes
2: one of the interesting factors that we were considering putting into the paper Uh, but there just wasn't any literature around it whatsoever, was we were considering looking at how propagating under pressure might Precondition the yeast to be able to survive better under the pressurized fermentation or lack of pressure. And it's, we normally propagate under similar conditions that the yeast are going to be experiencing during the primary fermentation. And if there's an advantage to pressurizing fermentation, that's something that we would like to report. But we were able to, we were not able to find any evidence of that whatsoever in the literature.
0: That's pretty cool. Karen, is that, is that, um, your experience is, is yeast almost always propagated, you know, um, without pressure?
3: Uh, yeast is almost always propagated without pressure. It is going to be an aerobic propagation. So as you're bubbling in that air, um, however, the yeast provider is, uh, you, what kind of air that yeast person is using is going to depend on the yeast, um, supplier but uh the addition of air is going to help you know
0: build biomass
3: build biomass but also um expel that co2 that might be um being made during propagation propagation's interesting when you're talking about brewing propagation because generally speaking you're um i guess in Liquid yeast providers. Um, it isn't a fed batch system; it's a continuous batch. So you're you're putting the amount of uh, carbohydrate, whatever that carbohydrate amount might be, um, all at once, rather than feeding it periodically, which is more common in in dry yeast propagation.
0: Have you seen anybody propagate with this, like you know, vacuum system, like Andrew's talking about? I mean, that seems like that might have advantages if you can like really reduce that CO2 level even further.
3: No, the vacuum was definitely something that um, while we were kind of coming together and meeting on, um, on this paper, something that we talked about playing with in um, propagation though.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, Okay. A lot of brewers like to bung their tanks about a degree Plato before their expected terminal gravity to carbonate the beer. This can be, difficult to time what are the consequences of doing this is this so late in fermentation that it's not likely to be uh, any it's not likely not likely to, to cause any significant suppression of volatiles or should they expect an effect from from doing that and what about if it happens you know a little earlier say 2 or 3 degrees before terminal
2: a lot of that's going to come down to just how much ethanol and how stressed are the yeast? The danger is if you're running a high-gravity fermentation, you may prematurely stop the fermentation from finishing. Uh, the additional stress of the high pressure can induce the yeast to stop fermenting. Um, if it's a fairly low gravity fermentation and the yeast are happy, then there probably won't be enough detrimental effects that the brewer would even notice so that it would up the carbon dioxide or carbonation in the beer prior to finishing, which is probably exactly what they're looking for.
0: If a brewer wants to promote ester formation but minimize higher alcohol formation, what's the best way to use the dissolved CO2 variable here? for example could this be done by waiting until a certain point in the fermentation to increase head pressure
3: i think that's an interesting theory um i would say the answer to that question is that we just don't have data um to really fine tune i mean i I think that's always the goal of the brewer right is i want uh, this specific flavor profile, but that's not always how it works. I mean, yeast are living organisms, and and um, especially when you're talking about ester formation and higher alcohol formation, they're intimately tied. Um, so it, you you can't always get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> <This> is my <laughs> short answer to that
0: fair enough, Andrew? Do you have anything to add to that? Is 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 it possible to separate? Uh, ester formation, higher alcohol formation, using this dissolved CO2 variable, or are they too intertwined?
2: They're going to be fairly intertwined. And also worth noting is we are creating more esters overall from a comp, like a 100% versus about 60% is what we saw in the paper. But the effect of these compounds is very different. We have different flavor thresholds. The effect of having over too many higher alcohols is going to be very different than having too many esters. That said, it is always easier to remove some of these compounds than to have them put back in. So if at the end of fermentation, it needs to be blended or purged or degassed or purged with a bit of nitrogen to reduce some of them, they're going to go down based on their volatilities.
3: I think from my standpoint, the big thing that I want to get across is, you know, this isn't an all uh, end-all tell-all um, kind of situation when we're talking about pressurized fermentation. I think there is, there has been work that has been done on pressurized fermentations in the past, and this is somewhat of a review article somewhat introducing some new um data to the world but really what we want to or at least what i would like um first to realize is that this is a new not a new uh, a parameter that can be changed um during fermentation and to play around with it i mean i think that's what the the beauty of craft is is it's um Continuously evolving and and figuring out new ways to ferment and get kind of interesting flavor profiles is um, kind kind of something that brewers are always trying to do. And we mention it at the end of um, the paper, but don't really go into it extensively. But you know, how does this affect hazy IPAs or or quite? fermentations um i think really exploring how pressurized fermentation can change um the fermentation kinetics but also the the outcome of the fermentation and your resulting beer is something that is yet to be seen but hopefully people will start playing with a little bit more
0: yeah i, th- I think there's a lot of you know there's this real growing diversity of yeast strains that are used commercially right and i think um there's a lot of potential here because you know a lot of them are producing very different ester profiles and um it, it, it could be really cool to see see you know what various combinations of different strains and and these methods can can accomplish so
3: yeah or even part. what you brought up of you know when when you start pressurizing yeah. the fermentation how does that affect the resulting beer i think that's yet to be seen but um something that i do think would be a really cool experiment to try
0: I just, I just heard of uh one brewery uh in in Cleveland that's using a um a strategy that was almost the opposite of what you hear most of the time where they they allow pressure to build in the beginning and then they and then they relieve it uh later on and you know throughout the course of the fermentation and I think maybe they even do that a few times and have have it go up and down and
2: oh interesting
0: um, it was un- That's really to me. weird yeah, it's unclear to me exactly what the outcome of that was but um Uh, you know, so that's an example of somebody using that lever, you know, to accomplish something that they want to accomplish in their beer. So,
3: yeah. And seeing what happens, right. That's, uh, I mean, it can be an expensive experiment if you're talking about a 40 barrel brew house, but if you have the ability to try something small and then see if it scales, um, that would be really cool to try. And when
2: you get into something like swinging the pressure, as you just described, it'd be very interesting to see how the bubble formation in the fermenter is interacting with the yeast. You might get a whole lot of resuspension of some that had previously fallen out, and a lot more stirring of the overall fermentation vessel. You get a lot of leeway that you can use there, just with the pressure that's naturally building up. Uh, just to add something to the overall style of this paper, it was—I've never written a paper like this before in collaboration with industry—and Chris and Karen are both phenomenal to work with. I think partners between an academic lab environment and industry are going to be very beneficial to the industry at large. And I think we should promote this whenever we can.
3: Uh, wait, one. I think the one thing that I would like to just stress is um, the safety component. Just make sure, you know, as Andrew mentioned, not all fermentation... Vessels are rated for much more than 15 psi. So, if you are going to try to explore um, pressurized fermentations, make sure that you are doing it in a safe manner. That's the mom and me speaking.
0: That was Karen Fortman and Andrew McIntosh here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check out their article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. You can find a direct link in the show notes